So Money, Episode 736, Danielle Town, author of Invested, How Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger Taught Me to Master My Mind, My Emotions, and My Money with a Little Help from My Dad. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Ever want to do the exact opposite of what your parents want you to do? I think we've all been there. I'm still there, kind of. There is just something about making your own choices and decisions as you grow up. But then, of course, we usually find out that our parents were right. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's guest is Danielle Town. She's a New York Times bestselling author as of two months ago. And the funny thing is that her bestselling book is about investing. It's a topic that she admits she actively avoided her entire life. Her father, you might know him, Phil Town, is a highly sought-after speaker about investing and a New York Times bestselling author in his own right. He wrote the book Rule Number One many years ago, which went on to basically make him a household name in the world of investing. The interesting part about Danielle was that she was raised by one of America's leading financial experts, but it really took her until adulthood to really want to master her own finances. And it's when she realized that her dad might have something important to say after all. We'll be discussing her new book, Invested, How Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger Taught Me to Master My Mind, My Emotions, and My Money with a Little Help from My Dad. A lot of you have been asking me about my recommendations for books on investing, and this is definitely topping the list right now, and it's one of the newest and best to hit the market. Danielle and I explore her childhood. What was it about the friction, perhaps, between she and her dad that led to this avoidance to learn about investing? Tell you, our parents can do quite the number on us as we are growing up. They've since made amends, and they actually co-wrote the book together. So obviously things ended well, but it's interesting going down memory lane and talking about her childhood and her adolescence and the influence that her parents had on her. And what is she investing in right now? It's just one stock, I was shocked to learn. What is that stock and why? Here's Danielle Town. Danielle Town, welcome to So Money. Congrats on your book. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. It's wonderful to be here. Your book is called Invested, How Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger Taught Me to Master My Mind, My Emotions, and My Money, and in parentheses, with a little help from my dad. And we should mention your dad is Phil Town, who is the best-selling author of the personal finance and investing book, Rule Number One, which uh, for me, that's like one of the all-time best books on investing. I remember my brother, Todd, actually went to one of your dad's seminars in the Bay Area. He's, you know, he's, as you know, he's, uh, your dad has an illustrious resume and and bio when it comes to educating people about personal finance. What I found really interesting though, Danielle, and I'm sure you've been talking about this a lot on your book tour, is that you didn't really arrive at this place in your life where you really cared about investing in personal finance until like much later. You know, uh, it wasn't something that you kind of grew up knowing was 
important or interesting or, you know, so talk about that, that epiphany and why you think you were sort of late to it. Was it just a resistance because your dad was so much, <laughs> he had all the ground covered and you just felt like I, I want to do something different. He did. You know, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I put him in parentheses on the book title because because he has been such a huge figure, but we thought it was so funny that he taught me all of this. And yet he's just sort of so minor compared to the true gurus, which are Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And growing up, I always heard about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger sort of in the periphery as something my dad did. Like, I don't, I don't know if you experienced this, but it was just kind of like what he did. And I didn't really pay a lot of attention to that. And it didn't really interest me a whole lot. I mean, I, for somebody who maybe is fascinated by math or numbers, they would have been more all over it, but I'm not, I'm a words person. I ended up becoming a lawyer. I really, to this day, am quite bad with numbers just naturally. It's just not my thing. So he, speaks in the language of numbers. And when he would talk to me about investing or a company or analyzing something, he, the way he does it is he goes through the numbers in like rapid fire. Mm -hmm. And for somebody who doesn't get it, which is me, I just zone out within about three seconds and he doesn't notice. And he Mm -hmm. just goes on for about 20 minutes and 20 minutes later, you're kind of sitting there like nodding along. And, uh, and my dad has had a great time by himself explaining something that only he understands. So, you know, he's, he's amazing at what he does, but it didn't get through to me. And I have a younger sister as well, and she's a doctor and I'm a lawyer and neither of us really took to it. But it wasn't until I was in my mid thirties, I had a successful career as a startup and venture capital attorney. And I had accumulated a little bit of money. I still had student loans, but I had, you know, a house and I was doing pretty well. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with money? And at the same time, I was getting really burnt out in my job. I was working at a big law firm and had big law firm hours and was just frankly exhausted. And my body was responding to all the stress I had been going through for years by getting sick. So uh, I was literally like getting fevers out of the blue and my stomach Mm. stopped working basically. And I had to go on all these medications and supplements in order to even digest food. And then I started vomiting randomly and I had to go on medication and I just got really sick. And that was the real final straw of, I called my dad. I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how much longer I can keep this job up. And he said, you have to learn how to invest. And I said, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised that your dad investing was all this string of numbers, the way he, he had always talked about it. And it, it took me getting into it and realizing that I could really turn this into something that worked for me before I really got into it. I ha- I was going to say, I- I'm surprised your dad wasn't the sort of guy who like opened up an IRA for you, like first thing, you know, <laughs> my dad, uh, we weren't uh, a- an investing family necessarily. We talked a lot about money, but investing was sort of not the most exciting thing that we talked about. We like to talk about real estate and earning money, but he did open up, it helped me open up a Roth IRA when I got my first job. And he was big on like 401ks when I got my first real world job. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
so do you think your dad was a little bummed when you when he was you know going on these 20 minute tirades with you as a kid and you were just sort of yawning and uh or or uh, yeah he was bummed yeah. yes <laughs> and at, he never opened any particular like ira for us but i remember that one year he decided to give us both um like a decent amount of money. But the caveat was that we had to learn how to invest with it and invest with it on our own. And neither of us did. So it just didn't happen. So I mean, you, to imagine that, like somebody yeah. actually giving that to you. I look at it now and I'm just like, what the heck was I thinking? Well, what were you thinking? Because you didn't like the numbers aspect of it, I, and the math aspect of it. You're a words person. I appreciate that. But what else do you think there was to it? Because we were talking actually before we went on the show about being a young woman versus maybe a young man and how maybe you would have had a different uh, – sensibility around it. Like I think, you know, generally speaking, um, men are more sort of interested in investing. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to get in trouble for saying something so general, but but I agree with you. I think there are people who will cite studies that say that that's not true. And I have looked at those studies and I'm, I'm just not a hundred percent sure I agree with them. And also anecdotally, just in my own life, I have noticed that the men in my life and in my family in particular are the ones who are interested in investing and the women are not. And it's not that we're not smart. We're just, we're just not that interested slash. I really think it's that we have so many other things going on with us that we need to be doing that if there's somebody around who's going to say, Hey, I'll take care of that for you. You know, we'll hand that off. Yeah, that's great. There's only so many hours in the day. So the problem with that is that we've just handed off our power. We've just Mm. handed off something that is so important to our position in the world, which is our money. And we do it without even thinking. But to also answer your question about some other stuff going on with my dad when I was young, I mean, it's a great question. And I, I wrote in the book about how I discovered through this process of investing that there was actually all this deep childhood trauma that I had around money and my dad. And I had, if you had asked me this three years ago, before I ever started this whole thing, I would have said, Oh, no, everything's totally fine. I feel totally comfortable about money stuff. And it wasn't until I really got into it. And I was learning investing from him for about six months. And we had started our podcast, the whole deal. And I just couldn't quite totally get into it. And I didn't know why. I sat down and really did some soul searching and I realized that it was because my parents got divorced when I was about 11 years old and my dad essentially left and he took all his money with him and we literally had to sell our, we had a big house, we had to sell it. We moved into a trailer park. My mom had to get a job. She had never worked when I was a kid. She was always a stay at home mom. She started teaching again and it was a huge trauma in my life. And so I realized, and I had blocked it completely. So I realized that I was trying to learn about Phil money. Town. <laughs> well, Phil to Town be, left you to and your finish mom the story, for broke? He came, he came back and they worked it out. My mom had hired a serious divorce attorney. They were fighting it. It was just a classic divorce war. And... <sighs> I'm not trying to take sides here. They both, you know, were doing stuff. But the fact is my dad controlled the money and 
and he that was one weapon in his war. And I don't think he realized how much it affected the kids. Um, even until we talked about it just a few years ago, when I when I told him this, he had not realized what an effect that had. And I hadn't realized it. I mean, nobody did. So they worked it out. They ended up firing both their lawyers and just getting together in a room with a mediator and working it all out. And they're actually very friendly now. And obviously, my dad and I repaired our relationship. Um, so there's a happy ending. But we that experience of discovering that deep childhood mess that was inside of me and telling people about it has made me realize that other people also have this stuff. We all have a relationship with money that we grow up in. It doesn't matter what your situation was. I don't care if you were rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, you had parents, or you lived with somebody else, whatever your situation was, you had a context and a relationship with money that was taught to you. Mm. And we are all still dealing with that as adults. And to answer your question, I think that is actually a huge reason women don't want to touch money stuff. It's painful a lot of the time. Well, and money is yeah. so wrapped up in relationships for us. And I think what I'm hearing from you, and it, it's, I feel it's echoed in so many other conversations I've had with women, especially about money and what it means to them and why it means the what it does to them, is that we associate money with power as a culture. That's, I think, something we can all agree on, that money is mm -hmm. power. But I think how it gets sort of mangled, that definition gets mangled, is that a lot of women see it as a power to control, not a, not a power to sort of help and heal and improve. Like it's used as in your, in your childhood, it was a, it was a weapon that your father used in his divorce. And he used that to have power over your mother. And I think that that creates an aversion to money. We see money as this kind of negative thing. And so we don't go after it. We don't negotiate. We don't ask for more. We, uh, we, we hand over our power to men in our lives to manage the money. It's, yeah. it is clear when you connect those dots. And I think that the most empowering thing that I, one of the most empowering statistics I've read in my career is that when women um, first of all, women are more charitable than men, period. No matter what level of income, hmm. what kind of a household, as a proportion of their income, women are more charitable. And so I firmly believe that when women make more and investing is a way to do that, the world can become a better place. Because I think that as women, we do see money, we can see money as a tool to help and heal and improve our lives and other lives. It's power uh, to support people as opposed to power over people. And I think that if we can wrap our brains around that and get behind that, it's it, it can be a wonderful thing. And that's why I love what you're doing is because you're, you're kind of democratizing investing for all of us, especially women who may be God. kind of anti or on the fence about it. Yeah, I could not agree more. Money is something that we have been taught is about having power over people, but it's actually power that we can wield for good. And we are not doing it enough. We women and men are not doing it enough. We are not taking advantage of the power that we have in the markets where we can actually choose fantastic companies that are doing good things in the world and put our money into those companies and support them and what they're doing. And we can also take our money out 
of bad companies, companies that are polluting, companies that are bad to their employees, companies that are hurting animals. We can take money out of those companies and thereby change the entire market. I mean, this is something, as you're saying, that's on a very personal level, as in we're more charitable, we can use the money for good in our own families. And it's something that by doing that, we can make changes in the marketplace as a whole. There was a, a survey released by our sponsor, Chase Slate, that found that, among other things, that families, parents, uh, over 50% have had uh, money moments, money conversations with their kids. And so growing up, for you, what was the most pivotal money lesson that you got, whether it was from your mom or your dad or just witnessing that uh, that relationship? Because sometimes it's not even about a conversation. It's just about the modeling. You know, I think for me, besides the one I already said, which was probably the biggest one, um, something I learned from my dad was a lot of kind of basic behavioral economics. I think before people even really talked about behavioral economics, he taught me the concept of sunk costs and how once you've purchased something, for example, if you purchase uh, like theater tickets, then that cost is gone and you can then decide if you actually want to use the result of that cost, as in actually go to the theater or go to the concert. It's, it's sort of a funny little pinpointed thing, but I, my dad reiterated that one over and over and over to me. You said earlier, and it stuck with me, that like investing well and investing meaningfully is all about kind of, for you, it's been about finding your way. What is your way? How are you integrating investing into your life in a way that is interesting to you and that you can also stay with it? That's a great question. For me, investing has to be a practice. That's how I came into this in the first place. I said that, you know, I had to make it work for me and it would be different from my dad because he's got just a different perspective on it. So I came in going, all right, if I'm going to actually do this, I know that I have to do it differently. And what I can do is treat it as a continual learning process where the point of it is the journey and not so much the actual result. Now, the result is incredibly important and that's why we're doing it. But I have learned that actually through the process of educating myself about investing, particularly long-term value investing, I have grown as a person in my own self-mastery in ways I never expected. I mean, for example, even the experience of going back into my childhood and realizing that I went through that kind of money trauma, I would have never done that without coming into this practice and without being open to it as something I really needed to go through. It was really hard. It was really painful to go through that, to understand it, to kind of relive it in a way. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything for me. It's also been this process of discovering that I can vote my values with my money. I can put my money into great companies in the market the same way I do with my consumer dollars. That also changed everything for me. It took it, and maybe this is something for women in particular, it took it for me from being this kind of, uh, I hate to say greedy, but that's the word that comes to mind. Like it took it from being this thing that was kind of like, Oh, I just need to like get some money and I'm going to do this work and I'm going to get money for retirement. And it turned it into, and that's a really negative way to say it, but that's kind of how it's sort of, there's a feeling of it to that. And it turned it into something where I feel like I'm really helping the world 
in a very direct way with my choices, with my money. It makes me feel a bit like a warrior. And I know that that sounds kind of like grandiose and crazy, but when you're doing something that's as life changing as this, that's what it takes. And that's how it feels. So your book specifically praises the methods of Warren Buffett. Who is the other person? Charlie Munger. Charlie, Charlie Munger. Munger. Warren Buffett. Yeah, he's Warren Buffett's investing partner. He's a brilliant lawyer. And um, and they've been fighting for like 60 years about investing stuff. And, it's great. <laughs> um, and, and so their main uh, method to investing over the long run is value investing. So first, I'd love for you to kind of explain briefly what that is. And then the second part of my question is, you know, on this show and in, I guess, the investing realm, we we advocate for investing with sort of a long-term approach, not worrying about market gyrations, knee-jerk reactions to market moves, timing the market, all of that, that you're sort of f- picking out a couple of index funds, a few index funds, riding them out. But I think that your strategy is a little kind of in between where you're not day trading, but you're also not super passive. So talk about what the, what the cadence of your investing is like that you, that you recommend. But first, what is value investing? Value investing is choosing companies that have very good fundamentals. So they're making great cash flow and have a strong intrinsic and durable competitive advantage. And then you buy them at a low price compared to the actual value of the company. Now, what that means is that price and value are different. And there's a lot of people who disagree with that. But Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have made a hundred billion dollars on that concept. That's it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, Well, well, how do you determine value then if, if not price point? So here's how Charlie Munger says how to do it. There are four principles of investing that he follows. And this is how my dad taught me. Number one, you make sure you understand the company. Now, what that means is you can understand the general gist of what they do, what industry they're in, what's happening to them overall, what's happening to them recently. You can basically explain that company. And what that also means is that A lot of these companies out there are just too hard. Warren Buffett actually has a too hard box on his desk. There's a picture of it and it says too hard on it. And he keeps it to remind himself that there are a lot of companies that he needs to just toss away and not go any further with. So I would say maybe 95% of companies fall into this too hard. I cannot understand that company pile. The rest of them, cool. Okay, we move on. The second thing is it has a moat, which is an intrinsic and durable competitive advantage. And what that means is that the company itself intrinsically, by the nature of what they do, has a very strong competitive advantage over the other companies in that marketplace. As in, if some other company tried to show up and enter their market, they would find it extremely difficult to do it, even with the same amount of money as that company that you're looking at. And there are actually some numbers that can help you with that. The third one is management. We want to have management. Charlie says we would like to have management. 
with integrity and talent, which I always get a kick out of because he doesn't say we have to. They also at other times have talked about how you have to have a company that's strong enough to withstand human error because at some point, some person's going to come along and screw up that company. And you've got to have a company that's going to be able to withstand it for a few years, even if somebody is doing something just completely boneheaded with it. And then the fourth thing, as I mentioned, is you buy it as a, at a sensible price. And what Charlie means by that is a price that's lower than its value. And he likes to buy it at 50% actually lower than its value. So it's quite a strong discount. And if you can find a company like that, and I say if, because this is a very strong criteria, then you will have a company that within who knows how many years, let's say 10 years is going to go up back to its intrinsic value. And that's where you either decide to keep it or you sell it. So very, very long term, probably five to 10 year horizon. My dad sometimes says 20 years and focused on companies that are, have extremely strong cash flow and are going to do well in the future and continue to grow. All right. So this transitions us well into the next part of the question, which is that how do you recommend we monitor our investments? If if there's one camp, which we talk, which we're, I'm sort of in this camp where we talk about, don't worry about picking stocks, but rather mm-hmm. pick kind of an index or a theme through an ETF, an exchange traded fund to get into the market as opposed to cherry picking stocks. What you just described sounds like you're really going in and picking particular stocks. So uh, what's what do you say to that? I mean, should we just do what you do or should we find a, a way in the middle or or what? Okay. So number one, yes, it's totally cherry picking stocks. I completely admit it. And the reason for that is that there's no reason to diversify if you're choosing great companies. It's all about the company itself, not the context that it's in compared to what else you've bought. So to your question about worrying about market gyrations and timing, I really don't. I mean, you've got to make sure you buy the company when it's cheap, when it's on sale, which can be very much affected by the market. For example, right now, it's really hard to find companies at a good price. It's almost impossible. So there are so many value investors who have been sitting around just waiting for this market to crash for about three years now, and their returns are down because of that, because they're just waiting. They haven't really been doing much. So people are looking at that going, oh, look, value investing doesn't actually work. Well, when you have a market that's going skyrocketing to the moon beyond most um, previous times in history, yeah, you got to wait around for those prices to fall before you can buy. What Warren Buffett says is you want to make sure you have a wash tub ready so that when it starts raining gold, you can run outside with your wash tub. So as far as indexes, what Buffett says is he, as you know, he's a huge fan of buying market indexes. And the reason for that is that most people he thinks are not going to have the time or the inclination to actually research companies, to actually do the work and do all the stuff I just said, understand the company, understand the moat, understand the management and find it at a good price. Now, I think he's right about that. If you're not going to do that, an index is totally the way to go. However, I would urge you 
to start thinking about putting a little bit of time into this investing practice. And I really do mean a little bit of time. I spend probably 10 minutes in the morning reading the business news. I spend a little bit more time on the weekend looking at particular companies. Sometimes I spend a lot more time because it gets actually really interesting. I find a company I'm interested in and I'll start reading all the stuff about it for a few hours. And that's when I start going like, oh my God, who am I? Who have I become? I'm doing this for <laughs> I've fun. become my father. I, oh my gosh, no kidding. Like we send each other emails now. Did you see this company? Like, oh, mm. what did you think? And then, every now and then I'm just like, what has happened to me? This is crazy. What are you investing in? Because we have to know now that, that coming from you, what are all you, right. what are you curious? So like? I'm going, I'm going to preface my, I will answer but I'm going to preface my answer. What Warren Buffett says is that we should have a punch card of companies we buy in our entire lifetime. So a punch card like you get like at the gym or the yoga club, um, which has 20 punches in it. So you get 20 companies to buy in your entire life, which is nuts. So what he means by that, I've, I've chosen to not take it seriously. And I think what he means by that is don't buy a lot of companies. Like, take it very seriously when you buy one. Think of it like a marriage. I've realized that if I buy a company and then I go on your podcast and I stamp my name on that company, that means a lot. So it becomes this very big deal to buy a company as opposed to day traders or somebody who's in a more short-term view who's just like, oh, you know, I have this thing. It's maybe it's crap. I'm going to get out of it soon. So to answer your question, right now I own one company, Chipotle. What? Even Chipotle, I think, is a fantastic company. It just got a new CEO from Taco Bell who revolutionized Taco Bell. And I just love their mission. So to Charlie's four principles, I have added my own, which is mission, which I've kind of mentioned, which is making sure that the company has a really strong consciousness in the world. And I love the way Chipotle focuses on antibiotic free meat. It treats their animals well. Its ingredients are organic where they can get it. I think they've revolutionized the fast casual industry. They basically invented it. And I love their food. So I'm all in on Chipotle, but it was super expensive for a really long time. And then when that E. coli thing happened, it was awesome because the price dropped like crazy. Did you buy more? Everybody was acting. No, I hadn't bought it before that. That was when I bought it. Right, and everybody right, right. was acting like it was never going to come back from this thing. When, of course, like so many fast food companies have gone through something like this mm. and they've come back and Chipotle is going to be the most clean and have the best standards out of any of them because that's so important to them. So, yeah, so I bought it then. And um, I mean, frankly, if, if it had continued to go down, I would still be completely happy with my purchase. That's something I've learned from my dad when you buy something, you actually hope that it will continue to go down in price because then you can buy more of it at an even cheaper price, which is great for somebody who thinks in 10 years it's going to go up. But this one actually popped up quite quickly. So, um, so yeah, I'm up now. Like I actually, to be honest, I actually don't look at my account like ever, but I think it's gone up like 30% or something like that. And so out of Within your portfolio, is it just Chipotle or do you also have like index funds and ETFs and other sorts of assets? Nope, I don't have anything else. I have one other company, which I own a very tiny amount of, 
which I'm not going to name because it's something I'm a little unsure of. But every now and then I buy like a tiny bit just to see how I feel about it. This is this is my way of testing out to see if I really know a company well, to see if I really want to get into it. And and that one I, I'm still a little unsure of. So I own a very tiny amount of that one. Um, but Chipotle is it. Chipotle is my guy right now. Chipotle is you're going to retire on Chipotle, you think? <laughs> Sorry? Are you going to retire on Chipotle? <laughs> no, because also my dad taught me not to put my entire trading account into one company. So, yeah, I've got my wash tub ready. I'm waiting for it to start raining gold. All right. And then you'll... Uh so you're looking for like a portfolio of 20 punch card stocks over the over a course of a lifetime. Correct. That's the idea. Yeah. Now, you know, if the market drops like crazy in the next year, which it totally could, then I would be happy to buy some other companies. And um, I'm not sure exactly how many that would be at a given moment, but small. It'll always stay very small. All right, Danielle, this has been super valuable because you've been telling us very specific things. I loved the conversation we had about your childhood and connecting the dots. That that was really, in a word, uh, beautiful. I do too. And I loved your insight about how money is seen as power, particularly with women and in relationships. I think that's such an important comment and important thing to say to women who are debating whether or not they want to put time into investing work. Hmm. All right, let's do some so money fill in the blanks, shall we? Just finish these sentences. Uh, have fun. Okay. I'm All right. <laughs> if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is. Oh my gosh, I would go spend it at like Saks Fifth Avenue. I would buy a whole new wardrobe immediately. Oh my gosh, that's a great answer. We don't get anyone saying that because I think they want to sound like they're going to be really responsible and invest the money or buy property. Oh, I would. I would, would do that, but that but would first, happen yeah. once I was well-dressed. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, because uh, treat yourself first. Feel good. Lo- yes, treat yourself. That's the better right. you feel about yourself, the more you're going to give away. No, what I was—I thought you were going to ask me what I would do with it in general, and I was thinking, gosh, I would just do exactly what I'm doing right now. But then you said first, and I thought, oh, yeah, the first thing is you would go and get some nice clothes, and you would probably buy more Chipotle. I suspect <laughs> that would be the second thing. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? The one thing I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better or both is. Hmm. I spend my money on technology stuff that makes my life a lot easier. Like? Oh, you know, boring stuff like a new computer and a new phone and fast internet and that stuff. (laughs) Unexciting. I've been thinking about upgrading my MacBook Air, but my husband's telling me not to because the new version has a bunch of uh, issues with the keyboard or something he said. And Oh my gosh, I'm telling you, like, I'm so down on Apple and I know that I'm like the one voice in this storm of people who adore everything they do and their stock price is going up like crazy. But And I own Apple products and I use them, Mm -hmm. but their stuff is just not getting better. No, it's definitely hitting a saturation point. I was, do you watch uh, Silicon Valley on, I believe it's no, HBO? No, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I was a startup lawyer and I have to say that show just hit so close to home with how stressed I was at work that I had to stop watching it. 
Well, they have this company called Huli, which is, I think, kind of the equivalent of uh, maybe an Apple in our in our time. And one of the things they said on the show recently was, so they're coming out with this new product and the founder CEO is like, we're not, he's like, we don't care about long-term uh, sustainability of this product. We want to sell as many of these in a month because it's, we just know like there is no long, there's no shelf life to this product. Right. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of how a lot of products come to market. It's like how many, we want to sell as many as we can, as fast as we can. And then we're done. We're going to leave. We're going to, we're not going to really like, we're not worried about making this a lifetime product because the the goal is to always reintroduce the new version, the update, whatever. Right. We'll get version 3.0 out there and that'll make the other one obsolete. So this doesn't actually matter. So inherently, you're not getting a quality product because it's not meant to last. Yep, exactly. Exactly. See, TV does teach you a couple of things when you watch it. (laughs) My dad's constantly telling me I need to watch Billions, but I haven't started. Oh, yeah. I kind of gave up on this latest season. I just got it's I feel like there's so many layers to it and I have trouble like keeping up with all the characters and maybe it's because I'm on my phone at the same time and (laughs) trying to watch you at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, I know it's like about investing or something is what people keep telling me. And I, the problem is I live in Switzerland, so I have to figure out how to get showtime over here. I'm sure I can just pay for it somehow. Yeah. Or you could maybe borrow it from a friend. (laughs) Or I could could borrow it from a friend. (laughs) Don't tell anyone I told you that. Um, All right. So the one thing that I splurge on, so we talked about what makes your life easier and better and that's technology, but what's like your big splurge that maybe you do once a year or you did once in your lifetime? Oh, a really big splurge once in a lifetime. Something that you've already done or that you have a guilty pleasure of spending your money on this. I tend to buy really expensive food and drinks every now and then. Like I love fancy dinners, artisanal, like amazing food products that come from some particular farm, like in Italy and, and the cows or the whatever's were like massaged by the farmer. And, and then you have to have like the perfect, you know, wine that goes with it. I, I go a little crazy on that sometimes. Um, Are you in the Bay Area or where do you reside? No, I live in Switzerland, in Zurich, (gasps) Switzerland. What? Okay. That's so fascinating. Switzerland's one of the most expensive parts of the globe. Yes, it is. Especially in food, actually, because Switzerland is not part of the EU. So they have, they're on their own little oasis here and they tend to um, put pretty heavy taxes on the food they import. So um, yeah, it's great because we're close to all sorts of amazing food products and wine and um, everything around Europe, but it's definitely expensive. And so what brought you to Zurich? Ah, Farnoosh. So another podcast, another podcast, a book, actually, it's it's part of my book. Um, I as I was learning this whole investing thing, really, this all happened at once. So coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, I don't know, I was trying to find financial freedom. And I ended up finding this whole crazy new life. So I lived in Boulder, Colorado, I was a startup lawyer. I loved my work, but I was so burnt out, as I mentioned, and I took a vacation and I went through Europe on my own. Mostly I came to Zurich to see a friend of mine who lives in Zurich 
And on the very last night that I was visiting Zurich, she said, I'm going to introduce you to my friend. And she brought the friend over and he and I sat next to each other on the couch and hit it off. Mm -hmm. And we just had this total evening of like basically becoming best friends. And he said, you should stay. I said, no, I have to go to Paris tomorrow. Like, oh, I have to leave. Oh, the and, and he was like, uh. okay, fine. I'll text you. And so he spent the next week texting me and I was going to England right after that. So he ended up, he said, I have to go to London for work. Can I come up and hang out with you up in Oxford? That's where I was for an entrepreneurial conference. And I said, okay, fine. So he bought a plane ticket. He flew to London. It turns out he never had to work there. He rented a car. He drove up to Oxford. He got a hotel room and he showed up at the pub I was at one night. And I was very impressed. That's impressive. That's love. It was kind of getting there to love. Yeah. So Uh I went home and he came out to Boulder and stayed for three weeks and then went back, came back for another couple weeks. I went to Zurich. We did this whole crazy thing and um, ended up getting married and I moved to Zurich. Wow. Danielle, you're amazing. Thank you for giving us so many insights and stories. And I really enjoyed chatting with you and connecting with you. And I I did share a panel with your dad many years ago on an MSNBC show called Your Business. And, you know, JJ JJ Ramberg has been on this podcast and I'm... Yes, that's a great show. I remember meeting your dad. And so it's so lovely to connect with you, his offspring. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gosh, all the directions we went on this show from your childhood to your investing book to your, your marriage and all the adventures in between. Thank you so much. And congrats on hitting New York Times bestseller. Thank you so much. It's been so fun to talk with you and I hope we get to talk again soon. Thanks so much to Danielle for stopping by. Chipotle, how about that? Didn't expect to hear that stock come up on this show, but there you have it. If you'd like to learn more about Danielle, you can go to daniellettown.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Danielle underscore town. Her New York Times bestselling book is called Invested. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com. You can download the podcast, the audio transcript, and also leave me a question for our Friday Ask Farnoosh sessions. Click on Ask Farnoosh and let me know what's on your money mind. I'd love to help you out. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money. Money.